Molly, we are doing a new thing for a while because we are so appreciative of our Patreon patrons. I think we've mentioned it already, but we want to give our Patreons a second shout out. Since we have been doing this now for, oh my God, almost two years, and a lot of these patrons have been with us the entire time, we are trying to think of ways to keep saying thank you to you because it means so much to us. And we came up with this little idea to just sort of, at least for a while, thank people again on their anniversaries. And one of our people who just had an anniversary with us, happy anniversary, is Eli. Yes, our good friend Eli joined us about a year ago. Eli participated in uh, some of our events and has won a raffle. But I also wanted to mention the that Eli had a podcast of his own. It is now on hiatus, but I know that a lot of people really love it, including people who have done re-listens of it. So if you're interested in My Little Pony, they have a My Little Pony actual play podcast called The Host and Sword. So it's just, you know, kind of fun. It fills a niche that needs to be filled. Oh my God, I love it. Eli, you're fucking awesome. Sex with Ghosts. I'm Molly and I'm here with Russia's four. No, not Russia's. Uh, the foremost expert on Russia, Bridget. That's right. I'm not in Russia. No, no. Today we are covering Tsar Nicholas and the 1905 Russian Revolution, which was the first Russian Revolution. So we're talking... The Romanovs. Yes. And close to the end. Close to the end, but not quite. We're not there yet, but we're going to see all the setup of how the end came. Nice. Yes. We have done an episode on superstitions in Russia. We've done an episode on Rasputin. We had a bonus episode on Catherine the Great. Which you can listen to if you're a Patreon member. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're interested in more Russia content, please go back to those episodes. Otherwise, you can stick around here with us. And I can tell you just the basic facts, the bare bones facts about what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, the Romanov dynasty. It began in 1613. And lasted until the Russian Revolution of February 1917. The first Romanov leaders were descendants of 
Andriy Ivanovich Kobyla, who was a Muscovite boyar. And Muscovites were the people who lived in the area centered around Moscow. Muscovia is the historical region in central Russia. And a boyar is a member of their old aristocracy. So they were aristocrats long before Russia became Russia. Wow, that's a long time to hold wealth. I know. Yes, it's true. They acquired the name from Roman Yurov, whose daughter, Anastasia Romanovna Zakarina Yureva, who was the first wife of Ivan the Terrible. And it was her brother's children who took the Romanov name in honor of their grandfather, Roman Yurev. And then after the Times of Trouble, which were 1598 to 1613, Anastasia's brother's grandson, Michael Romanov, was elected the new czar. What does Times of Trouble mean? It was a time in Russian history where there was just a lot of like, I don't think there was a leader. It was like, you know, one of those periods of history where they're trying to, who's going to come out on top kind of thing. And the Romanovs did. Oh, so it's like a series of battles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the background of the Romanov dynasty. And then we come to Tsar Nicholas who was the eldest son of Emperor Alexander III and his consort Maria Fyodorovna, who was previously Princess Dagmar of Denmark. He respected his father and adored his mother and succeeded his father on November 1st of 1894, married his wife Alexandra on November 26th of 1894 and was crowned Tsar in Moscow on May 26, 1896. So he married his wife after his dad died? Yes, like pretty much immediately after. And he was like 26, wasn't he? Yeah, that sounds about right. I just think that's weird because like that seems really old. (laughs) Yes. Well, we will come to see that Nicholas was pretty immature for his age. Okay. So it could have had something to do with that. I feel like that's also very common with a lot of czars is that you hear these stories about how they would meet their wives. Like in the case of Catherine, for instance, their husbands are just like, I'm going to play with my toy soldiers. (laughs) And it's like, "Um, but we need you, sir, to tell the real soldiers what to do. And there was another thing also about this. His parents didn't necessarily love Alexandra, his wife. He had supposedly loved her from when they were children kind of situation. And the parents, they really would have preferred him to marry someone else. So that's weird, right? Because, and I don't know if if something changed at some point, but in my, my knowledge about Russian marriages it's usually like your spouse is chosen by your parents yeah and so how did he escape that i didn't look into this completely but i 
do wonder if like part of that was his father had died. So he was free to marry the wife. Oh, yeah, I guess that that makes even more sense, because if he's next in line to become czar, then what power does his mom really have to say he can't marry her? It's not like they did not like her. They just did not feel like she was the best match because she had a history of being a little bit over excitable, uh, which we kind of heard about when we talked about Rasputin. Yeah. The lady liked to have mental breakdowns. And so, yeah, his parents were like, you know, maybe that's not the best choice, but Nicholas was besotted with her and did not want to marry another. So that's what he did. Sounds kind of like a toxic relationship from the get-go. Yeah, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't great. And I did take a little bit of a detour when I was researching this down the um, road of his mother, who was very beloved in Russia. But then it came to Alexandra and the Russian people did not love her. So that was another uh, negative towards that marriage. And she was, was she from Prussia or Germany? Alexandra was German and the Russians and the Germans did not have a good relationship at this point. I think, yeah, I think they, they, yeah, they've always, <laughs> yes, even like in Catherine, like it's, they've always butted heads. Right. Yes. So that was just, you know, it's just not good, not a good situation. But the thing is, Nicholas wasn't a good czar. He was just really bad. He was a bad ruler. I think that you'll come to find that he was the downfall of Russia. Yeah, he was kind of a piece of shit. (laughs) So that's kind of how I went about my research. I kind of, I, I wanted to look at why wasn't he a good czar? Well, one of the first, not one of the first, but like one of the easiest things to look at would be his character traits. According to Britannica, he neither had the upbringing nor the temperament of an autocratic ruler of a vast empire. His father did not prepare him at all to be a leader. Did he have another brother in line? Nope. His father just was really bad at being a father to a future ruler. That's incredible because his dad, wasn't his dad like well-loved and a great politician? His father was pretty conservative, but he was a better ruler. And the thing is, if his father had lived longer, which he had planned on doing, then Nicholas maybe could have learned more along the way. But like I said, he was pretty immature for an older (laughs) gentleman. I mean, you got to 26 without anyone making you get married. You have no education in being a ruler. Like... This is not good. I mean, it's good for us people who are pro right, pro worker, pro people. Absolutely. This is yeah. great. This is what you want for somebody who's been hoarding much of their country's wealth, if not the world's wealth. Seems like you should have done a better job protecting that. Yeah. And I just think that's really interesting because like it did seem like Alexander III was all right, but like not having any sort of succession plan is real big blind spot. 
Here are some descriptions of Nicholas too. He was misunderstood, a villain, a coward, a saint, an idiot, and a puppet, which all seem to have a grain of truth to. I'm like thinking about this and I'm like, this is what succession is based on. Yeah, yeah. This is Kendall Roy. Okay. Buckle it. Though, if we're being fair, most of this history has been romanticized and perhaps over-dramatized. So the real story may not have been as interesting as we see in the movies. Though I have I have found the most interesting parts, I hope. Well, and there are there are unique things like his marriage to Alexandra, for example, is one of the very few actually documented royal couples that actually loved each other. Right. Like they shared a marital bed and that was like incredibly uncommon. Very true. So he did not receive a political education, but he did receive a somewhat militaristic education and a somewhat theological education. It was either way, very aristocratic. Which is also funny because those are like, in terms of military and theology, those are two huge blind spots. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Yes. He enjoyed military pursuits because his father was a very militaristic guy. He lived very much according to order on a set schedule, those kind of things. And military brings a lot of glory. It's like, yeah, yeah. Having a military, starting wars with other countries, it's like, it makes people feel the scarcity, which is what you want when you have a ruling class. Yeah, sure. So he was militaristic due to his father, but due to his mother, who was much more of the aristocracy going to balls and parties. She could hang. Yes. So he he got that from her. But he was just not very intellectual. He often felt like he was not as smart as other people in the room, which caused him great paranoia because he was constantly afraid of being usurped in power. Yeah, inbreeding will do that to you. And it wasn't even that he just wasn't very smart, which, I mean, maybe these things go hand in hand, but he had like no intellectual curiosity either. He traveled in 1890 to India, China, and Japan, and his father had hoped this might open his eyes to international relations, but he did not care for the travel at all and ended up injured by a fanatical Japanese man, which caused him to develop a hatred and distrust for all Japanese affairs. Oh, my God. (laughs) So he like leaves home, fucks himself over, and then he's like, well, I hate any type of person that represents this me. Cool. Cool. He was just born a fascist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, that was kind of what his teachers, that's what Alexander wanted him to be taught pretty much. I mean, it was fashionable at the time. Yeah. And in some circles, still fashionable today. 
Nicholas was charming, but he was timid and did not enjoy interacting with people outside of his small family unit. This was also kind of similar to his father, which was also not great. Pretty much he had no contact with his subjects at all. We aren't surprised by that. (laughs) Yeah, I think we talked a little bit about that in Rasputin. Yes, yes. He was devoted to his wife, who had a strength of character that he lacked, even if it was a little bit flamboyant. Yes. A little bit big, excitable. What does his excitable even mean? We say excitable. It's like a term that they used to use for women specifically. But then you think about like all the inbreeding and like weird politics at the time. And it's like, likely she's probably just like a byproduct of trauma and inbreeding. And instead of diagnosing that or looking into that, we're just like, she's a woman. She's saying crazy stuff. She's excitable. Yeah, I can see that for sure. And I can't really imagine what Nicholas was, even though I've read all of these traits together, they don't really develop like a good picture for me. Well, I think she, she realizes what his status in life and for whatever, whatever her personality problems may be. I think the one thing she has a grasp on is this guy is going places. I'm going to be nice to him. And she makes him feel important during their whole marriage. Like, She's writing these like crazy letters to him when he's, you know, in battle and visiting other countries. She's writing like these crazy like love letters and telling like reminding him that like God acts through him. So like if you have someone telling you that all the time, it's kind of hard to like not not like him. Yeah, it's like not just that he's dumb. It's like that. He's not smart in so many different ways, I guess. He has a like low EQ. It's like, yes, he's dumb, but he also like, like, I need someone to tell me I'm special. I'm a special boy. My second cousin will tell me that I'll marry her. Exactly. That's what it feels like. It's like, Jesus, how can they have thought like this is a good person to pass the throne on to? Jesus. (laughs) This is an obvious one. He favored people who provided him distorted pictures of Russian life that were positive and distrusted his ministers who may have given him more accurate pictures of the issues in Russian life. At the beginning, he would pretty much turn to his mother for any question at all. And then as time went on, he would turn to his wife more and more. I tried to ask my mom questions when I was a kid, and she would just say, Bridget Ann, I don't lose sleep over it. Really seems like you should have listened to her because she had a better grasp on the situation and how to uh, appease the Russian people and all of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, his mom seems like she was definitely more aware, especially what you were saying in the Rasputin episode about like she would be in the streets like doing stuff for the people and Nicholas's attitude is I could do it from here and I don't really need to do anything they should just be grateful they're Russian 
Yeah. So I didn't actually say this specifically, but Nicholas had a very simplistic view of his role. He was appointed by God and he must maintain the autocracy. And that was pretty much it. And I I think that's a really common theme with a lot of czars. I don't think that's and rulers in general. I mean, if you're a ruler with your own church, so czars kind of have that going on with uh, Orthodox Christian, but like same when we talked about Henry the Eighth. You know, there's like this, this I have this relationship with God because I am a ruler. So it's like it takes it takes someone like Catherine Green to see that that's not always the case to get shit done. But yikes, yeah, here we are. So we already see he's a bad leader, but if we're going to go academically about it, we can look at the five-factor model of personality initially advanced in 1961 by Ernst Toops and Raymond Crystal. And this model postulates that there are five factors of a personality neuroticism, extroversion, openness to experience, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. Wait, these are like five parts to everybody's personality? Yes, they are. And then there's like many subcategories below these, but this is what they think personalities are built upon. And since Since 1961, there has been further research to suggest that the last four traits are positives for leaders, while the first is a negative. So the first being neuroticism. Nicholas was neurotic in his need for approval. His fear of failure indicated a pretty high level of neuroticism. But that's hard because that's like one you're going to get pretty easily. I think, I think no matter, no matter how confident you are between like people literally murdering people to move up in rank and, and being told like, well, you're in charge. We didn't give you any education in being in charge, but you're in charge. I can see like why you'd have like a lot of neuroses around that. I definitely agree, but I also think that that's the reason why we don't have monarchies anymore. Like, you can't just, you have to have leaders who have these qualities, and that just doesn't happen. Like, stuff that they've prepared for and groomed versus, like, well, well, my my cousin's daughter's, my cousin's daughter's yeah. son, like... <laughs> Now the world is yours. Good luck. Um, His tendency to keep to his family unit indicated a a low level of extroversion. He had very little openness to experience because he really lacked any sort of vision or perception, especially when dealing to the issues in Russia. Some of their introversion I read, though, goes back to like the superstitions which is that like anyone could give you the evil eye and the evil eye would be like a curse and so that was part of 
all of the protection because of how much superstition was believed. So it's like, you don't want to interact with regular everyday people because they could curse you. Sure. Jesus. That's really depressing though. Like, (laughs) and, and I heard like, one of the things I heard is like, the kids would get sick because they're like having vitamin D deficiencies because they're not getting out in the sun because the, everybody's worried about them getting cursed. Good God. Like they just, this whole thing was just set up so very poorly. It was just a recipe for disaster. My God. <laughs> the one positive he had, Nicholas was remembered as a warm, caring man who was friendly and perhaps too trusting, which would indicate a high level of agreeableness. Yeah, that's how he married his second cousin. And for conscientiousness, his job performance was obviously very poor and he achieved very little as a leader. But some do claim that he did have work ethic and was dependable. I mean, he was an idiot for sure, but wasn't he also influenced a lot by his uncle? Like he had an uncle, Sergey, who came in and he's like on his shoulder being like, I know what your dad would do in this situation and kind of pushes him into battles. Whereas everybody else was like, please don't do this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he had a few people like that who were giving him pretty bad advice. And manipulating him in those ways as well, because we do know that when he made decisions, he was constantly thinking about what his father would do. So it would be pretty easy to manipulate him in that way. I could tell you almost every guy I've ever met who seeks approval from their father. (laughs) Big red flag. I can see that. Yeah. And only women have daddy issues. Probably not. No, that's yeah, that's a that's a sexist idea. Also, this gets credited a lot. So it's the only reason why I mention it. His wedding day where for celebration, they're giving out all these. What do you call that? Like trinkets, mugs and food. And they're like, we're celebrating the czar getting married. And or was it the coronation? It's either. No, I think maybe it was a coronation. And all these people got trampled. Yes, yes. I did read about that for sure. And I think a lot of people point to that as like, his reign was never going to be good. It was just so bad. Because he didn't do anything to, to fix that. It was like, I would compare it to like Astral World, except for way more deaths. It's like you had all these poor people showing up for this free stuff. They get trampled to death because they run out of items and then they don't issue any apology. They don't do anything to try to fix it. And so then this this kind of feeds the grudge. It's already growing because of the way they're treating poor people. And then it's like, see, we have a, a tangible event that happened where they clearly did not give a shit. Absolutely. So. This animosity, this kind of like disturbance was, what's what's the word for that? Like there were rumblings before Nicholas even came into power. 
Alexander the Third was like a militaristic. He didn't. He was not going to change. There was going to be no change. And a lot of historians kind of look at it and see if Nicholas had been a different man, then he could have led Russia into the future by making the changes that were needed. Yeah, I mean, it it had literally already happened in Russian history. Um, as we talked about with Catherine, it's like she came into a very bad situation and a lot of that was instigated by her own husband. And then she turned it around by joining the coup. And then, like most politicians, making a lot of promises that didn't really come to fruition. But some of them did. She had an all-girls school, as we already talked about. But So this is not the first time that things are just like going poorly for a czar. Yeah. It just so happens that it's already bad. And then we put this idiot yeah. who needs to tell who, who needs that participation ribbon yeah like talk about fucking snowflakes yeah. like and this guy is a conservative mm. all right so now we're we're here to 1905 which was uh the first russian revolution which was a turning point for russia transforming from the autocracy to at first a constitutional monarchy. So to put some, give you some more ideas about what was wrong with Russia at this time. It was one of the most impoverished countries in Europe. It had an enormous peasantry. And although the peasants had been freed in 1861, their lives were extremely limited. Sounds familiar. Absolutely. I hinted at this before, but there were peasant communes. This is what the Russian autocracy set up for people. So instead of just once the peasants were free, the nobility was starting to sell off their land very rapidly. So what happened was the government set up peasant communes where an individual peasant would have rights to a strip of land in a commune. But they would have to pay taxes to the government. And in the end, they were not given enough land so they could eat and pay taxes. Oh, wow. So they like created their own like Hoovervilles? Yes. Yeah. Very similar. So that's that's what's going on in the countryside. But then there's also a growing number of poor industrial workers who are in the urban centers and they are unable to strike or join labor unions at this point. So they are obviously being uh, pretty poorly treated. Are unions just illegal? Yeah, or, okay. at this point. And there's like secret police too aren't there there are yes yes i will speak about the secret police in a little bit i think so those are uh this bad situation um in addition there is much discrimination of minorities including banning them from voting serving in any sort of government or military role going to school it is a uh, 
extremely nationalistic country, which pretty much is trying to russify everyone everywhere. So there is, starting in 1905, this is, well, I mean, I guess a little bit before 1905, there starts to be protests and strikes because you can only deal with this for so long, right? Oh, yeah. Um, Bloody Sunday occurs on January 9th of 1905. And this started as a strike partially planned by the Russian, the Assembly of Russian Working Men. Starting around this time, they were starting to put together unions because obviously things were, th- th- things are bad in Russia. The workers are talking to each other. Yes, saying, yes. This is kind of fucked up, right? Right. What started as a peaceful protest in St. Petersburg ends up being a massacre, which marks the beginning of violence, riots, assassinations, and strikes spreading across the country. Not only that, there were uprisings and mutinies within the armed forces and secret police. So 1905 is not a good year for Nicholas. Wait, so there's mutinies going on too within the government jobs? Yes. Oh boy. Yeah, it's not not good. It's not good when your when your government starts uh connecting with the people cuz then they're like going to work for the people. That's bad if you're a czar. It's right. good if you're a person. Yes. The revolts spread to non-Russian parts of the empire including Poland, Finland, the Baltic and Georgia who were mostly angered by the russification I spoke about earlier, which had kind of started during Alexander II's reign. Are you saying, so what exactly is a russification? They are trying to, and actually it's, it's, it's one of those situations where it's like, God, this is, it's like the past is the present. Oh yeah. And the future, it's all the same. Um, Russia just really wants everyone to be Russian. They're trying to be a monolith. They're trying to take away your individual culture because as I, you live in Poland, you're not Russian, but the Russians are trying to make you Russian. Okay. It's not great. They didn't have freedom to speak their language or celebrate any of their culture. Definitely sounds familiar. So based on all this pressure, growing strikes, increasing people angry with the government they decree in august that election procedures for the advisory assembly would be held but that is not enough and it just increases protests oh boy in october a railroad strike develops into a more general strike in most large cities And it's the magnitude of this strike which causes Nicholas to finally act, agreeing to develop a constitution and establish an elected elected legislature and council of ministers. Is this the DOMA? This is the DOMA. It's not good. Yes. There were many 
spontaneous demonstrations of support in major cities. However, the concessions did not meet revolutionary demands. And even the liberals refused to take part in the government. But some moderates were satisfied and many workers returned to their jobs thinking that the revolution was over. I mean, that's part of the pageantry of these sort of historical events. Like the pageantry is what makes people feel like, oh, something's changed. Something's different now. We all felt that way when Obama got elected. And then at the end of the day, you realize, nope, it's the same shit system. Yes. Amnesty was initially offered to the political leaders of the revolution, but there ended up being a lot of backlash from conservatives just based on this agreement, this concession by Nicholas. In the conservatives are the ruling class like isn't it the it's the people with money so like yeah if you are a lord and you had a bazillion serfs at one time and now they're like trying to take they already took away your serfs and now you got these workers and they're trying to make it easier on them it's like what's next my castle it's true but i did find it interesting that there was enough I, it wasn't quite like just the ruling class because I would have thought that to be a smaller population. But the conservatives in Russia at this time were a large enough population to actually cause violence by attacking strikers and fighting in the streets. So it wasn't just like one or two lords or whatever. It was a there's enough people who support this system. Yes. Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. Exactly. Because of this increased tick in violence, the government arrests more and more people. At the end of November in Moscow, another strike is called and there is fighting in the streets. Finland was able to restore order by removing unpopular legislation, but... Poland, the Baltics, and Georgia, their rebellions were violently suppressed. So they had more of a handle on the the people who are like, what the fuck is going on? Yes. And now I'm going to talk about some of these bad actors in this revolution. And the first is the anti-Semites. Oh, there's a lot of those, including Nicholas. Indeed. A Nicholas was an anti-Semite and blamed the Jewish people for all of his woes. Like, I think one of the things I heard while knowing, anticipating this was coming up is like his wife, Alexandra, a lot of times, like she didn't like someone or someone rub rubbed her the wrong way. She would just be like, yeah, they must be Jewish. <laughs> pretty horrifying um the washington post had a very funny quote his belief in a world jewish conspiracy combined with his contempt for democracy made him a fascist before the word was coined he's an og fascist yeah it wasn't just like 
people were anti-Semites. There was actually an entire anti-revolutionary group called the Black Hundreds. They were a group of landowners, rich peasants, bureaucrats, merchants, police officers, clergymen, and presumably the group of conservatives that I was speaking about before, whose main goal was to support the orthodoxy, the autocracy, and any sort of Russian nationalism. These are the guys who are like, if you just if you just behaved. Yes. Oh, God. And the Black Hundreds attacked not only Jewish people, but socialists as well. That tracks. Yes, it's true. And it was included in their organized massacres of Jewish people. That's crazy, man. They were like, this is pre-Holocaust. This is like where the Holocaust yes. really is born. Yeah, definitely. It's pretty crazy. And then let's talk about the police state. Woohoo. As Bridget was talking about before, there was definitely a police state. Any sort of threat to tranquility or stability within the autocracy, Nicholas started. Well, actually, it was even before Nicholas, but he increasingly used the police state to calm any sort of, well, quote unquote, calm. Obviously, that's not how those things work. But yeah, he thought that he was putting down the rebellion. It's just crazy. Like, imagine the work flyers like, do you want to be a narc? Get, get paid for being the narc that you already are. And um, it wasn't just that it was a police state. There was literally something called there was something called the exile system, which was a form of punishment for thousands of young Russians where there is no due process of law, only a bureaucratic decision making process known as administrative authority, which in effect was an imperial command by Nicholas saying you're guilty. Oh, my God. At least 70,000 people were imprisoned between October 1905 and May 1906. It's a witch hunt for poor people. Yeah. And you can't possibly, I don't understand autocrats and such. It just doesn't make any sense. No, they, they definitely don't. And unfortunately... There's enough people who give them power so that they can scare people into sort of controlling their rebellions until you can't. Right. Until you can't. Like, it's obvious that that's going to happen. You can't just, you, okay, has, whatever. Uh, well, let's not go down that road well, right and, now. And, and I think, like, with what's going on now and some of the stuff I've been following on the, the current events of Russia, it's like there's an older generation who are behind what's going on. They're about supporting Putin because they're getting all of this media. It's like Fox News of all hours. Like you don't have a choice to watch something else. All The only news you can get 
is their equivalent of like Fox News. I totally understand that, but it does make me wonder a little bit like I I do have a little bit of sympathy for that, but it does sound like the youth are like trying to make their like parents aware like, hey, what yeah. the Russian news stations are saying is not true. Yeah. And um, it's been interesting. I don't know if as of right now, what's going on is that they can't use TikTok or Twitter or any social media to the outside world. So they're coming up with like creative ways to still get the message out the younger Russians. And like one of them I saw today, it was clear that this TikTok creator was able to, who's an activist, was able to send a video to somebody in the States who reposted the video. And this activist was saying like a way to support right now because of the issue with money transfers would be to support like Airbnb in those areas because then they'll get the money. Like, obviously you're not going to go to Russia or Ukraine, but it's a, a way for them to get that money that bypasses say like uh GoFundMe. Sure. That- donation sites. That's nice. Luckily for everybody, people fought back as well. And the Russian police forces were targeted at targets of organized assassination plots and spontaneous lynch mobs. Oh my God. So the Russian police were extremely fearful for their jobs, for their lives. Hell yeah, cab. And that was one of one of the many reasons why, as I, I talked about before, for these mutinies, because the everyday police officer is like, this is not worth my time. I'm not going to die for this organization. Kind of what's happening now in L.A. No one wants to be there's a cop shortage. And luckily, it was the revolution of 1905, which pretty much causes the downfall of the growing police state in Russia. Because the leaders of the police, the, they kind of the I saw a lot of different titles for it. It's like it's pretty much the secret police or the government police. They were all chosen specifically by Nicholas. So they were not leaders of men. Oh. They did not attempt to win any respect or loyalty from their subordinates and had a callous disregard for all people. So they're like psychopaths. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is one of those situations where it's like autocrats, don't realize that you can't just like appoint people to positions that they don't qualify for. Like the people under you aren't going to respect you and you're not going to get anything done. Kind of like nepotism. Yeah. It just doesn't work because I mean, if you really want something to actually function and in this case, like in a case where like the, the problem is like, I look at those kind of stories and I'm like, well, God forbid someone be competent. Like if if they had like had a little bit more sense to cultivate the group of police, it could have been really bad. Well, the Nazis figured it out. Yeah. 
but that's because Hitler was a hell of a, I mean, I have to think he's a hell of a lot more smart than Nicholas. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a guy who climbed his way to the top. Instead, yes. The guy who was just born into it. And the other reason for the failure of the growing police state was because of the formation of the Duma, which brought the police under the control of the system, which had previously just been Nicholas telling people what to do. So previously, Nicholas would be like, here's what you're going to do as a member of the secret police. And then when he wrote the Duma, it was like, now the secret police actually has to follow laws and a protocol. Yep. So that was the one good thing about the Duma. But as we, I mean, as you, as we kind of hinted, like it wasn't great. Like it was obviously not a successful thing because there was a very large revolution 10 years later, you know? And one of the things I heard too, is that he would, uh, what do you call that? Amend the Duma as, as certain situations would happen. And then he'd be like, well, this actually means that. And so the, there wasn't a consistency to this written No, no. And he had even appointed the first prime minister. So it was clearly like a. It was it was a little bit of a farce in a lot of ways. And even when they got their shit together, like it was just hard to get people to buy in and all of that kind of stuff. So it's not it's not at all any sort of real democracy. No, no, it's it's just barely functioning, I would say. Yeah. On the other side of the revolution, we had some additional groups of people. Um, did you know the word Soviet is a group of people? Like that's literally what it means? Yes. So a Soviet was a governmental body who was acting under socialist leadership. Yeah, I think I knew that at some point, especially in the early learnings of what's a socialist? <laughs> um, and that is that is what's behind the United Soviet USSR. Yeah, United Soviet Republic of Russia. United Soviet Socialist Republics. Oh, wait, two S's. I did yeah. at US. <laughs> Look, I've had some vodka. Okay, everybody relax. These were actually, they their beginnings were in the 1905 revolution. And it initially just rep- represented, the, the first one was in St. Petersburg and it represented the many of the striking workers in in St. Petersburg. Um, but as time went on, it came to be dominated by established, already established radical groups, including the Mensheviks, the Bolsheviks, and the Essers. The St. Petersburg Soviet, which was like the most famous one during this time, was one of the the famous leaders was Leon Trotsky. So, so far, okay, so up until now, we had a bunch of radical groups. 
that are basically like workers coming together being like, this is fucked up. Right. And then there's the St. Petersburg guys and they're like, look, we got a system. And they basically are sharing this with these other groups and other city centers, I'm guessing. Yes. And then they're all like, oh, let's just do this. Right. Like, so the Soviet ended up being like, it was more of a governmental body than anything. Like, I guess it was kind of like a union of the people as opposed to like a specific workplace or whatever. Okay. Okay. That makes. Yeah. So the Soviets would, the Soviets in the group sense of the term would be able to help the locals much faster than the government could. And so that's how they gained a lot of their uh, supporters and like reputation because they were actually kind of like a lot of democratic socialists. Yeah. If you can actually do things for people, then they are probably going to support you. Hey, hey, I did just apply to a a DSA candidate (laughs) to work for him for $20 an hour. So let's hope I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And in your right, they were they pretty much sprung up across the Russian Empire and continued to have a presence as a second government as like not opposing, but like opposite of the Duma. Sounds very familiar. Unfortunately, the St. Petersburg Soviet was closed when all the leaders were arrested at the end of 1905. But they did, uh, the rest of the Soviets kind of disappeared, but then reemerged again in 1917 with the full Russian revolution. So by the beginning of 1906, the revolution was over, but the most important reforms that had kind of happened were the establishment of the constitution and the creation of the Duma, which obviously had problems, but there were still like benefits to be had. Yeah. But they're like difficult to even get those benefits because Nicholas is overturning that when he's like, Oh yeah, I guess, I guess you're benefiting too much. Sure, that's that's absolutely true. But I just want to make sure that, like, without this, things would have had been worse. Like, there, it, you didn't. It was not for nothing. The, the Duma, the revolution, the revolution, right? And that's why we have a, we have a second revolution. Yes, yes. I mean, it's it's interesting because the Duma, in some ways probably did make some people more aware of like, oh, we could change the system. Yeah, that's what I think. Like it raises awareness that one, you're in a system that that truly doesn't work. If, If the czar is basically creating this Duma and this constitution, it in some ways is saying, yeah, things are fucked up. And then you're like, okay, so under this new Duma, that means life is supposed to function a a certain way. And then when he reneges on that, then you're like, well, this is, this is fucked up. (laughs) Right. 
So like in some ways he's making people more aware of how fucked up it is. Yeah, for sure. Um, in the end, this sets the stage for the Bolsheviks. I don't remember if I said that already, but I said it again, just in case I didn't. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned them, I think once earlier, but but we can, we'll definitely explore that more in part two of this. Yes, yes. Well, I'm excited for part two. Thanks for listening to me ramble about czars and revolutions. I hope it was interesting enough. Thank you for doing the research. Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bridget underscore suck it. Where can people find you, Molly? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Molly MM9. You can find my accounting services at m3virtualaccounting.com, www.m3virtualaccounting.com. And you can find this podcast at Sex with Ghosts underscore on the same platforms or email us sexwithghostpodcast at gmail.com. You can support us a little bit extra on patreon.com slash sexwithghosts or just leave us a five-star rating or review and review slash. You can do that on any of your podcast apps or iTunes and that um, is an easy free way to help us out. I think you did it. I think you got it. Great. Well, we'll see you next time. See you next time.